All right, so by now you should know that there is a quiz every time I preach. Are you ready for yours? <laughs> that didn't sound good at all. Um, I'm going to give you a quiz anyway because I need you to, to, to get, your brains, uh, get your brains going this morning. I'm sure you all reviewed in your minds when you came to church this morning about what we talked about the past two weeks, right? So this should be a breeze. First, genuine faith produces what? Change. Very good. That's a good start. We have a living faith, right? One that shows itself in our words and our actions. One that challenges us to keep on growing, which means to continue to change. We've also been looking at Wesley's three general rules. I'll give you a second. To think through it. We went through the first of those last week, which was to do something. Anybody remember what we're supposed to do? Do no harm. Do no harm. You got, are you going for extra points over here? Mine is like extra loud, sharing our answers. But good for you. Uh, and all of those who got that answer. Both pastors reminded you that one of the most accessible and easiest ways you could do no harm was to mind your what? Your tongue, right? What you say, how you say it, and if you say it. Today, once again using James to keep us grounded in Scripture, we'll look at Wesley's second general rule, which is to do good. Yeah, you don't get points for that because that's on the front of the bulletin. But I'm glad you're paying attention. It seems simple enough, right? <laughs> Doing good is connected to using godly wisdom to direct us in actions that result not to our benefit, but to others. It's about being selfless rather than selfish, about yielding to others and putting them before ourselves. In today's scripture, James clearly identifies the problems that are associated with being self-focused and selfish. The main issue James is directly identifying continues from last week. Hope you remember what that was. There was an overarching problem. The problem was that there were people who were teaching something that wasn't exactly the truth. They were teaching that faith, that real faith, was not accompanied by works or didn't have to be accompanied by good works. That faith was strictly a spiritual matter. You know anybody like that? Just food for thought. I want to give you a theological term this morning that describes what I'm talking about. So in case you want to impress somebody later during lunch, um, you can share this word with them. Antinomianism. That's the concept that simply says that Christians were free from the law, as if there were no practical considerations for how we live out our faith, how we show it from day to day. James said that out of our faith comes good works, and that there is indeed a deep connection between the two. Wesley and we Methodists would also highly agree. Do good. If this was not the case, 
then it didn't matter what James' readers did. And that is a dangerous place to be because if faith were disconnected from our works, it didn't matter what we did. And you can see where that might be a problem, yes? Not only does what we say matter, what we do matters too. And this is the correct teaching in James' understanding. He begs his readers to use godly wisdom as their guide and to place the needs of others before the self. In chapter 4, the second half, what uh, Bob read for you, James talks about his readers not getting what they want. And James begins by diagnosing the cause of disputes among Christians, uncontrolled desires that battle within. These desires lead to fighting and quarreling as they are focused on fulfilling selfish wants rather than godly needs. And he further criticizes their wrong motives when they pray, pointing out that their prayers aren't answers because they ask with selfish intentions. They don't pray according to God's heart. They just pray for what they want. I'd like to share an excerpt from a story written by Karen Malley, who just happens to be Pastor Nancy's daughter. In addition to, be, to being a published writer of several Christian romance fiction novels, she posts a Christian-based weekly short story on her website. Now, while I have not read her novels, which are excellent, so I hear, I do read her weekly devotionals. And here's part of her post from November 11th this year, titled Living to Serve. Do you need anything before I head over to the church? I need to mow the lawn. Daniel glanced up from his college application to find Dad leaning on the doorframe of his room. Why do you do that? Dad's brow furrowed. Do what? Mow the lawn at church? Because it needs it. Yeah, but surely someone else could do it. You're an elder in the church. You shouldn't be wasting your time doing stuff like that. I certainly wouldn't put that kind of thing on my college application. Daniel pointed to the computer. A list of his accomplishments filled the screen. Senior class president, head of the student council, editor-in-chief of the school paper, all titles of prestige. Dad entered the room and peered at the computer screen. I'm glad you have such strong ambition and leadership skills, but to be honest, if I were an admissions counselor, I'd feel a lot better about admitting you to my college if I saw some acts of service. Daniel frowned. Really? Why? because nothing is more important. Do you think you're better than Jesus? What? No, Jesus was a leader. Tons of people followed him. Dad took a seat on the edge of Daniel's bed. Ah, but not because he asked them to. People were naturally drawn to him because he was a servant. Don't you remember the night of the Last Supper? Jesus washed all the disciples' feet, even Judas's. He knew he would betray him, but he washed his feet anyway. Daniel squirmed in his computer chair. I don't think God is calling me to wash anyone's feet. Do you think I should do some service projects to beef up my application? 
dad sighed. No, that's not the point. You don't serve in order to look good or to get recognition. Then why do you do it? Dad crossed his legs and leaned back. It's natural for us to want, to want our lives to matter, to be important. There's nothing wrong with that, but that's not why God made us. God made us to serve. Now, Karen's story goes on uh, past that to show the importance of serving and how God equips us uh, to do it. But I made the connection between the motivation behind our serving, behind our doing good, as John Wesley calls for. We can serve and do good for ourselves, like Daniel wanted to do, or we can put others before ourselves and do good, not because it makes us look good, but because God designed us to do it to benefit others and not ourselves. Our ultimate goal should be, not be to see that we achieve personal success, but rather to see to it that others do. In fact, that would be the perfect definition of success, that it happens for others through our doing good. Do you remember when uh, the summer, I think it was uh, 2021, when we did a sermon series titled Signs of Faith? Do you recall that? We took common road signs uh, and applied a spiritual component to it. The yield sign was one of the ones we mentioned. And I have just a couple of reminders from that sermon since it applies so directly to what we're talking about today. Yielding, one of the things I said is this, yielding is a characteristic of someone who will allow God's will to guide their own and allow others' needs to supersede their own. The result of such behavior is peace. The reward of such behavior is reaping a harvest of righteousness. What does that mean? It means that through our yielding, others may come to know and more importantly see what the gospel is really about. And the gospel lived out by those yielded to God and to others will result in lives being changed, people being saved, and God being pleased. In this way, the yield sign may be the most important of all, so others can find Jesus. And there's nothing more important than people finding Jesus and Jesus finding them. Another thing I shared was this. The call to yield is not just to yield to God, but also to one another. To put the other first, to let the other go ahead of you, no matter how difficult it is to do, and however long-suffering you must be. In doing so, we will follow the teaching in the book of James, where it says if we will yield to one another, we will live an honorable life full of God's wisdom. I also shared this story. Driving down a country road, a driver came to a very narrow bridge. In front of the bridge, a sign was posted, yield. He recalls, seeing no oncoming cars, I continued across the bridge and to my destination. On my way back, I came to the same one-lane bridge 
now from the other direction. To my surprise, I saw another yield sign posted. Curious, I thought. I'm sure there was one posted on the other side. When I reached the other side of the bridge, I looked back. Sure enough, yield signs had been placed at both ends of the bridge. Drivers from both directions were requested to give right of way. It was a reasonable and gracious way of preventing a head-on collision. Brothers and sisters, can you imagine what the world would be like if it was full of people who chose to yield to each other? Think about all the things you're seeing on TV and in the news. Think about all your own personal relationships. What a different world we would live in. Now, yielding doesn't mean giving up your beliefs or positions you hold, especially when your positions are based in truth and in godly wisdom. But part of doing good sometimes means giving up the need to be right, even though you might be, for the sake of the relationship. Some of you know what I'm talking about, perhaps some of you who are married. Think about it. a world in which each person was more concerned about the welfare of the other before themselves. Now, I realize that might be difficult on occasion, but James says it's worth fighting for. That's true wisdom. That's godly wisdom. Yielding goes both ways. What a testament that would be to having a living faith, one that mutually yields. Once again, James writes, verse 17, but the wisdom from above is first of all pure, it is also peace-loving, gentle at times, and willing to yield to others. It is full of mercy and the fruit of good deeds. It shows no favoritism and is always sincere. And those who are peacemakers will plant seeds of peace and reap a harvest of righteousness. The end goal of yielding to one another, peace and rightness. When we yield to each other and apply godly wisdom, things end up being the way they're supposed to be. Reuben P. Job, in his book, Three Simple Rules, A Wesleyan Way of Living, says, doing good like doing no harm is a proactive way of living. I do not need to wait to be asked to do some good deed or provide some needed help. I do not need to wait until circumstances cry out for aid to relieve suffering or correct some horrible injustice. I can decide that my way of living will come down on the side of doing good to all in every circumstance and in every way I can. 
I can decide that I choose a way of living that nourishes goodness and strengthens community. He is talking about a living faith. Wesley's second general rule is what? Do good. The way we approach other people is meant to be a place from a place of gentleness and purity and selflessness when so much of the world tells us to approach others with the idea of what can they do for me. Wesley emphasizes that doing good is not about receiving praise or getting ahead in the world. Rather, it is about faithfulness to the gospel of Jesus who gave up everything for humankind. So this week, we have another very tall challenge. Last week, it was about our tongues. This week, it's about putting others first. It's not about submitting to anyone's will, as the only will we need to submit to is God's. But we must, according to James and the second general rule, approach others in humility and seek the best, not for us, but for them. How far can you take this today? In how many situations can you apply this thinking? In addition to the personal challenge it offers, we must also consider how we, together, specifically as the church, are to show a living faith by doing good. You and I both know that so many have been hurt or disenfranchised by the church in general. How do we reclaim our place in putting others outside the church first? Perhaps it's by realizing our church will not become a home to them until we hear their hang-ups and misgivings about belonging to one and put them first before meeting the needs we have as members and attendees. Be reminded of what Christ did for us. When we were completely undeserving of it, Christ became obedient to death, even death on a cross, says Philippians, to save us. I know we can't do what he did, but we can emulate the act of complete self-giving to benefit others, even when we find others undeserving, or we disagree, or we cannot see eye to eye. We were placed here to serve others as Christ served us, that is godly wisdom that results in peace and righteousness. And it also results in bringing honor to God and is pleasing in his sight. How are you doing? Remember, it's easy to do good to those we love. It's a different ballgame when it comes to those we don't. Let's be sure to follow James' teaching and follow through with Wesley's second general rule. We were not placed here to benefit ourselves, but rather to give ourselves away 
after the example of Christ. Genuine faith produces change. How will you change in this area this week? How will we change in this area this week? How will you show a living faith by doing good? I'd like for us to offer this affirmation of faith. It's number 885 in the hymnal. If you will turn um, back to that number with me. And before we say this, I want you to go to the bottom, to the last small paragraph of that affirmation where it says, we believe that this faith should manifest itself. I think it's clear our faith is not our own. We have a living faith to declare. 